I am J.A. Lovelock, a barrister, an author, but most importantly, a crime junkie. I love reading and I love crime, so what better way than to spend my time with crime writers and find out how they tick and how they marinate together characters, motives, killer instincts, murder suspects and their comeuppance. Welcome to my podcast, Behind the Yellow Tape. Hello and welcome to the program. I am J.A. Lovelock. In this episode of Behind the Yellow Tape, I speak with writer Errol Lloyd. Now, Errol is a man of many talents. He is an artist, a sculptor, who has been described as being gifted with an ability to capture likeness in a range of creative and engaging ways, and much, much more. Today, however, I want to hear more about his crime writing and his novels aimed at preteen children. So, Hello, Errol, and welcome to the program. Hi, Joanna. Nice to see you. Yeah. <laughs> and nice to see you, too. Mm-hmm. Now, for those who do not know who you are, for the very few people, I should say, <laughs> who do not know who you are, can you tell us about yourself, about your background? Yes, I was born in Jamaica, and um, I came to England in the mid-60s, quite a long while back, <laughs> to study law, and um, which I did at the Middle Temple in the court. Uh, but before I finished, I got involved with, with art, especially with the newly formed Caribbean artist movement. So as a person who had a basic talent with, um, with sculpture, I had some commissions to do um, busts of um, people like Gary Sobers, the cricketer, uh, Sir Alexander Bustamante from um, Prime Minister of Jamaica and Lord Pitt, quite a few uh, eminent people. And then eventually I got involved in painting. And um, from that, I um, got involved in illustrating children's books. And then from illustrating children's books, I thought, well, you know, I could put my hand to writing them as well. And that is how I ended up. Um, actually writing and illustrating children's books. Now, uh, when I was at school, I had um, developed an interest in reading when, when, when I was about 13 or so. And um, my favorite diet in those days for reading was um, the detective type stories called the Hardy Boys. And um, that was uh, uh, two brothers, American, who were quite wealthy. So they had access to cars and boats and okay, very kind of um, exotic, a very, uh, very, um, the type of stuff which children would consider quite cool, things you would like to do yourselves. And so I read quite a lot of those um, books. And then apparently, I, without realizing it, I had developed an interest in detective type stories. So when I got around to writing myself um, children's stories, then quite often they took that kind of um, detective format. Is is that um, where? Because what I want to know is what made you aim your novels at preteens? And when we say preteens, what age are what age are we are we referring to? Well, I have I think. Um, in, on reflection, I have worked for most of the age ranges. I started out doing what is called picture books, 
where the text is very, very um, limited and um, where the pictures are what count. And I didn't make a conscious choice myself. It was just that I was approached by a publisher. And um, so that's, that's how I got in, involved with, with children's literature. It was a mainstream British publisher called Budley Head. And um, they had been approached by a woman called Petronella Weinberg, who gave them a story. And then they had to find an illustrator. And through doing um, some uh, investigation with the Caribbean artist movement, they, uh, I was recommended. So I got involved in a way um, without consciously making a decision to, to go in that direction. And um, fortunately, the first book was highly commended for the Kate Greenway Medal. So I had a very early kind of push, uh, uh, um, a good start. And therefore, that led to other commissions. So are you saying then it wasn't your particular intention to write for um, children and sort of ch and crime? about for mm, children? Mm, no, I didn't really have any intention to be a, a children's book author. Um, I was more interested in painting, but because I had a talent for um, realistic um, stuff, um, especially through doing portraits and things like that and figurative work, I found it um, reasonably easy to turn that towards illustrations. And because most of the books I, were, I was doing initially were very few words per page, I thought, you know, well, I could have a go at writing my own stories and um, being able in that way to do the illustrations that I was happy with doing. And um, that's why I got the idea of doing a book on the Not the Hill Carnival, because I had um, been to one in the uh, very successful early carnival back in the 1970s. In fact, the year before, there was this big riot. And um, I was so kind of uh, impressed and overwhelmed by the loveliness of that occasion that I thought I, I could, um, if I could think of a story to do with children, which would allow me to do those, to recreate that kind of atmosphere, I'd be happy. And then I managed to come up with the idea of a, a little girl who didn't have a costume for carnival. And then all her friends kind of put together and got various parts of her costume. And she ended up being the queen of the carnival. And um, so that was um, well received and that went into a number of different editions. And um, so then I got a bit more established as a writer of children's books, uh, not just an illustrator. And then from there, that led to other stuff. So why, why crime for children? Well, I think the, um, anything to do with crime has an element of excitement, danger. And um, I think that is usually universally um, appealing to children. Mm -hmm. And um, especially if it's one way as well of being able to deal with ideas of facing danger and so on without actually having to face it. In, in real life. And I think that's one of the values of fiction is that regardless of uh, whether it's to do with relationships or things like crime or um, bullying or anything like that, 
um, it gives you an opportunity to think about it, to look at it from different viewpoints without actually having to go through it. And if you have to go through it, then you may have a perspective of how to deal with it, how to respond and so on. So where did you get your inspiration from, from the, from the crime books that you've written for children? Where did you get your inspiration from for those? Well, um, I've written the, 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 the three main ones. Um, the first one was about a bicycle, which was stolen. And it just so happened that a friend gave me a bicycle. And um, he lived in, in, in um, Belsize Park. And I rode the bicycle to visit him. And he lived in a, what they call a, it was a kind of muse flat. So it was a bit like a cul-de-sac. I left my bicycle, went up and had a, had a you know, good chat with him and um, had some food to eat and all the rest of it. When I went to leave, my bicycle had disappeared. <laughs> and um, I, I kind of logged in my mind because once you have that experience, you begin to think, well, who has taken it? And, you know, how can I get it back? And all that kind of stuff. And you think about it for a long time. So when I came to um, write a, a story um, um, for the um, this Random House that approached me to write a story for um, a series of books they called the Banana Books. It was very popular in schools at the time. I thought that, yes, I could invent a character who had her bicycle stolen just on the point where she's about to go and take her test to join a bicycle rider's team for the BRAT team, the Bicycle Riders Action Team. And um, it so happened that on her way to take the test, she was all, almost knocked over by this man driving a Rolls Royce. He was dressed up as a chauffeur. And in the back seat was another guy who was like a, he was just a bit like a rock star, a bit like an Elton John character. And um, then later on, when she goes to the um, club to take her test, she made the same mistake that I made, you see. She left the bicycle outside without uh, um, securing it, went down, and she was shaken from her being almost knocked by this car that they um, said, are you sure you want to take your test? And she said, of course. But then she realized that she had broken one of the first rules of the Brad Club, which was to always keep your bicycle in a safe place. So when she went now to take her test, uh, followed by the rest, there was no sign of her bicycle, you see. And she could see her bicycle being ridden by the same man who was in the back of the Rolls Royce. And they chased him, but then he jumped on the bicycle and pedaled away and then got to the Rolls Royce, opened the trunk, put the bicycle in, and then closed the trunk and then drove off. Of course, the first thing that they did was to go to the police station. But of course, when they explained to the police that a man driving a Rolls Royce had stolen their bicycle. The police didn't believe them. They say, you know, well, pull the other one, you know? <laughs> but, so they had to leave disappointed from the police station. But on the way back to the club, they spotted the Rolls Royce jam in traffic jam, you see? So they were able to dash across the park and then follow the Rolls Royce to the point where it went to this gateway, this great big massive gateway, which opened out. And then they, um, drove in, the gate closed, and then the children reckoned that since the police didn't believe them, they had to solve the problem on their own, you see. So they clambered over the fence when it was safe, and they went to the garage where the Rolls Royce was. Fortunately, it wasn't locked. They opened it, and there was loads and loads of bicycles all stolen, you see. And then they were able to overhear the, um, 
people talking about how they had stolen bicycles and sold them abroad and so on, so the police couldn't find them. And in the end, they managed to um, trick the, the, the um, people um, to get them arrested because they, they were spotted and they, they, um, the, 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 peop, the, the guys um, decided to chase them because they, they then grabbed any bicycle they could find and, and rode off. And then the car chased them and then they had the good sense to ride straight into the police station being pursued by the Rolls Royce. And of course, there were police there waiting for them that were arrested. And that was the end of that story. <laughs> That's very exciting. I have to say, I have to say, even now, I have read what, what you've written before and I find it quite... Uh, I, I enjoyed it. I, I enjoyed it and I found it quite exciting. And even now that you're retelling it, I find yeah. it actually quite exciting. So I've got a couple of questions to do with that. Yeah. Um, and I, I'm a grown up, I'm a grown yeah. woman, but <laughs> even I, even I find it quite, quite exciting. Now, you, you mentioned that the girl in the story with the bike, she broke one of the first rules about leaving her bike unattended. Yes. So would there be a lesson for children in these books that you've written? Yes, I think that um, what I did was I enumerated what the rules were. The first rule was to keep your bike in a safe place. Another one of the tests you had to pass was how to cross the road safely, for instance, how to look to the left and the right before turning, how to um, be able to keep um, a straight line with your bicycle, how to bring it to a, a, a quick stop, and all the things to do with safety, because one had to um, imagine, in a way, what would be the requirements for getting a, um, you know, um, a, to pass your test and to be able to join the club. So, in a way, indirectly as well, it was it was like life lessons about safety on the road, and um, and so on, and signaling when you're going to turn, that kind of stuff. So was that so? Was that your intention? Oh yes, oh yes. Um, whenever you you write these um, children's books, there's always um, the element of, um, of of danger because you don't want to encourage them to sort of jump on a bicycle and go dashing around. So part of the um, the whole business of the club was a device to establish, in a way, the safety elements, mm -hmm. and um, because you don't, um, I know that. Children's books authors usually get a lot of flack if they don't things like that, get things like that. Although it's not necessarily your job, you see, to, to be preaching about safety and so on. But it's something that it's it's a smart thing to do because it can impact on the sales of a book and also the meaningfulness of a book. If you don't try to incorporate things which kids can learn from. That's very good. I think that's really great. Um, can we have a look at the Casa Montego robbery? Can we hear a section from that? Yes. Now, this is a story which um, involved a boy going with his granddad on holiday to, to, to uh, Jamaica. Now, he didn't want to go. It was a, one of those um, apex tickets that they, that, that the grandparents had bought, but the grandmother had broken her ankle and she couldn't go and they couldn't get back the money, you see. So um, there had to be somebody going. And then um, Lennox's mum 
tried to persuade him to go with the granddad. He didn't want to go because he thought it was going to be boring because the granddad was into cricket and that kind of stuff, you see. Whereas he was into Arsenal and football. But anyway, eventually, they go to... Uh, he's he, she, he's um, persuaded because she buys him trainers and things like that. You see, he gets a bit bribed to go with his granddad. And then, far from it being boring, it turned out to be quite um, exciting because they got caught up in a... Uh, um, smuggling racket. Oh, um, they they um, Lennox had his grandmother had asked him to take some photographs and bring back for her to compensate her for not going. So unfortunately, his granddad snored, you see, so he couldn't stand being in the same room. So he went out <laughs> on the balcony to escape granddad snoring, <laughs> and then he remembered that his grandmother had asked him to take photographs. So he got his camera, and in the, this was in the night, of course, and um, he took three quick shots of all the various delightful parts of the thing, the pool below the coconut trees and all that kind of stuff. And he took quick, three quick um, photographs with the flash, and then, miraculously, there was a repeat out at sea. Three flashes came back, you see. So he thought, oh, that's odd, and then he heard the drone of a motor motorcycle, motor um, boat, and then he overheard some talk below of some people who were involved in a, in a smuggling racket at the hotel. And the racket, it was, it was about um, coral. The precious coral was being, against the law, being smuggled out, you see. And um, the, the, um, one of the guys who worked in the, in the gift shop was involved, and he doubled up as a waiter. And this is a, uh, this is a scene um, this is a scene from from the hotel room when the inspector of police, who was claimed who was in disguise there, joined up with Lennox and his granddad, who were already on to trying to solve the problem because they, you know, what Lennox had overheard. Said granddad and Lennox had no idea that the person who presented himself at their at their dinner table that evening was none other than Detective Inspector Wilmot, head of the Montego Bay branch of the Jamaica CID. He had registered as a guest under, the assume, under an assumed name and in the guise of an American tourist. He wore a straw hat, a pair of dark glasses, a multicolored shirt that hung loose over his Bermuda shorts and a pair of sandals. He carried a camera strung loosely over his shoulder. The name's Earl C. Scott III, and I hope you folks don't mind if I join you, he said in a thick American accent, doffing his straw hat to reveal the balding head. His bald head accentuated his thick walrus mustache. Not at all, said Grandad in his polite best. Only too glad for adult company. This shore is a hot country, said the detective, drawing up a chair and mopping his brow with a handkerchief. Don't know how you locals stand it he said in a loud voice, as if addressing a public meeting. There was a sharp contrast between the holiday gaiety of his clothes and the gloominess of his mood. This was due, as Grandad and Lennox were soon to discover, to his failure to solve the riddle of the Casa Montego smugglers. The, writer who had been, the waiter who had been hovering nearby throughout this exchange approached the table and as soon as the detective was seated. You ready to place your orders? He queried, pen and pen, uh, pen and pad at the ready. There was a hint of impatience and insolence in his voice. 
Lennox was astonished and not a little frightened to see that it was Fenton. He was not immediately recognizable in his formal outfit as a waiter. He obviously doubled up as a waiter when he wasn't working as, an, as a shop assistant. Lennox buried his head in the menu to avoid the gaze. The detective was the first to speak. To be convincing as an American tourist, he had been ordering burgers, steaks, and pizzas and other fast foods popular with the American guests. But after two weeks, he had begun to crave his native Jamaican food. Say, what local dishes on the menu would you care to recommend, my man? He asked the waiter, laying on his American accent as thick as maple syrup. Wherever I go in the world, I like to try the local food, he added to allay suspicion. What about our mutton a la Creole, uh, suggested the waiter. What's that, queried the inspector. It's mutton cutlets stewed in a Pisces curry paste and served on a bed of boiled white rice, answered the waiter, as if reciting from a memorized text. That sounds like curry goat and rice to me, whispered Randa to Lennox, stifling a laugh. The inspector settled for a mutton a la Creole, as did Grandad. Lennox had no quarrel with the main menu and opted for a burger and french fries and salad. Once the waiter was out of shot, the inspector lowered his voice and spoke in a confidential tone. Look, he said, I'm not what you think I am. Grandad and Lennox looked puzzled. I'll get to the point. I'm not an American tourist. I'm really Detective Inspector Wilmot of the Jamaica CID. I'm posing as a guest to try and catch coral smugglers operating from the hotel. Don't tell me you suspect us, said Grandad with alarm. You're not going to arrest us, are you? And then it continues in that way. Lovely. <laughs> oh, lovely. Uh, you, your books are aimed at children. But I, as an, I, as an adult, I, I love them. I love them. I mean, did, did you expect that sort of reaction? I mean, how, how do adults respond to them? Do you know? Well, um, one of the unfortunate things about um, a book like the one I'm reading from is that it was published by Oxford University Press for their, um, what I guess called their Oxford Literacy Web, which means that they have a um, kind of capture market with schools. So a book like this never gets into the bookshops, you see. And um, it doesn't actually um, um, get into libraries either. So it's really mainly known um, of uh, children more, more, uh, are the only ones who really have access to this book by and large. But I'm going to be reissuing some of these books on my own um, with a new publisher, hopefully for the open market. Yes, yeah, absolutely, mm. absolutely. Oh, thank you so much for that. I really enjoy that. Mm-hmm. Now, out of all the novels you have written for you, for children, who is your favorite character? Who's the favorite character that you developed? Um, well, there's um, there's one here which I, I um, wrote about a guy called Kelly. Now, Kelly and his mates were in like in in the middle of London, and uh, this came from an experience I had in Tottenham Court Road, which I replicated in the book. And they uh, in my in my story, he and his mates were passing this guy, and uh, he had a suitcase on the ground in the street with a crowd around him, 
and you were saying to the people, you said 20 years, uh, no, it, was, it says 10 years ago was the biggest gold robbery in history. And uh, that was true because there was the, the, the Brinks map gold robbery from Heathrow Airport, right? You said 10 years ago was the biggest robbery in history. The police found the robbers, but they never found the gold. Then you pointed to the suitcase, which had gold looking stuff. And he said, no, ladies and gentlemen, here in front of me, I have, I have uh, pendants, I have uh, earrings, I have sweetheart, pen, uh, whatever you call it, <laughs> chains and all that kind of stuff. Um, you won't find one of these in a shop for, um, you'll, you'll have to spend, spend 100 quid for one of these in the shop, he said. But what am I asking? I'm not asking 75 pounds. I'm not asking 50 pounds. I'm not asking 20. And you write and say, five pounds and it's yours. <laughs> so when you're writing for children, you make it a bit over yes, the top, right? Yes, yes, so yeah. Then he said, he said to the people, he says, keep your eyes peeled for the police. He said, I don't like them one bit. When they come one way, I go the other. <laughs> so what he's trying to do is give the impression that yes. this stuff is made from the stolen gold. Yes, yeah, yeah. And uh, of course, um, in my story, it so happens that um, as he was saying that, as he was talking, there was a policeman coming. Oh. So very quickly, he closed up the <laughs> suitcase. And uh, in fact, I, I forgot to mention that people were buying as well. Mm. But then another guy came up to him, whispered something, looked around, saw the police, closed the uh, thing and ran off, you see. And um, then the inspector came up, the, the police came up, and um, they were known to the gang because they had related, they had um, encountered him when they solved the problem of the, um, the bicycle thieves, right? So uh, he explained to them that these guys are just con men, you see. He said that uh, basically, it's not the stolen gold that the stuff is made from. It's just ordinary costume jewelry. They never say it's made from the stolen stuff. All they say, all he says is that there was a big robbery of gold. And so people's greed and their imagination take over. So they think they're getting gold for nothing. But in fact, it's just costume jewelry and it's it's okay. And um, they have a license to sell and all the rest of it. So they, they can't be arrested. And they just fool the public, the, the public by thinking, make them think that they're crooks by running off when they see the police coming. So anyway, off goes the police. And then as soon as they, the police disappears, the men come back. So now Kelly and his mates, they realize that um, it's perfectly okay see, to buy it. So he buys one for his mother's birthday coming up. And it turns out that the earrings he bought for his mother was actually the real gold. Oh. It was. Uh, so, in fact, um, it was a bit of a mystery there, you see. Mm. His mother mm. was not impressed. How come you go out buying wig? Where get the money from? How come? <laughs> so she took it. When she took it to the jeweler to get it um, placed on a, on a, it was a pendant to get it placed on a, on a chain. The jeweler told her it was real. And then mm. the mother rang him. And said that, you know, when I come home, I want an explanation. So they then have to set about, in the meantime, to try and find out how come. And that takes them back to, um, it takes them, they, they follow the man with the suitcase, takes them back to uh, old antique shop. And then they realize that uh, it's, it's, it's quite a complicated business because they found the gold. So they didn't realize that the gold that they found was the mass spring gold, which had been left there by the rail robbers who were in prison. But around that time, the, prison, the, the, the guys who stole it 
just come out of prison and they're now coming back to find their goal, you see. And um, in, whilst that is happening, the, the, the kids are in the, um, but a couple of them are in the shop upstairs and they hear the men come in and confront the two guys with a suitcase downstairs, you see. And um, they had actually um, secreted the gold behind a um, bricked up fireplace, you see. And so they started to come up the stairs. And of course, Kelly and his friend, they then had to hide. So they went and jumped under this great big duvet in this great big four-poster bed, you see, which was in front of the fireplace. And then these two men then had to move the bed to get to the where they had left their gold, you see. And in doing so, they they then um, had to lift the bed and they were complaining that, oh, gosh, these beds are like, they're heavy, man. You better don't make them like this anymore. <laughs> So eventually they get a sledgehammer, they break down the brick wall, and there's their gold, you see, and then they then have to go off to get a van to collect their gold. But in the meantime now, um, Kelly and his mate, they come out of the, from under the cover, and then they have to get one of these gold, um, uh, what do you call them, gold ingots or whatever, they got to get it to the police to prove that, um, so, you know, they, there's something happening. So they have to then tie it to a rope, let it down to their friends down um, below. And then the friend, they jump on their bicycles and take it to the police station. And then it ends up with the police being uh, coming and, and apprehending the gold robbers. Think of <laughs> your favorite character in, in, in your books. Think, just, just think of who would that be, your favorite character? Who would that be? I think the, the favorite character would be... Um, I think would would be unrelated to crime um, fiction. I'm not sure if that would interest you. Uh, just the same, it's but it's um, it's a bit it's a what it would be a teenage novel, not a preteen. Mm -hmm. And um, this was uh, the usual uh, kind of migrant story of uh, of a girl who comes to England to join her parents, having been left in Jamaica with her grandparents. And all the tribulations and troubles she goes through. Her name is Sandra, and um, there wasn't uh, there was no, none of this sort of crime element to it. Although you do have certain things which were definitely not nice, like bullying and that sort of thing. And um, but that that I would say would be I guess would be the favorite character because. Um, it was more complex to write it, and you get more engaged when you write in a long story. Another favorite one, simply because it was a, one of the first ones, was um, um, Nini at Carnival, that, that book that I mentioned earlier. That was, um, and I, I did two, two um, stories based with, with her. And um, unfortunately, as I said, it didn't have a crime element. Oh, that's fine. I'm just wondering, actually, in, in thinking about um, the crime books that you've that you've written, um, and the groups, and the Brat, and the Lennox. Just think of them for a moment, and just think if they were walking down the road and they saw a dead body, what would they do? No, that's a very good question. <laughs> <laughs> because I think they um, they would have had an experience already 
of dealing with unusual situations, of dealing with, um, certainly with the police. And I think there, when I wrote the book, they didn't have um, mobile phones in those days. But the first thing they would do now would be to get on their mobiles. It's quite likely that they would have already established um, a relationship with the PC. I can't remember his name actually <laughs> that I had written about in this book, but they would have asked for him and, and um, reported that they had found this dead body. And um, they probably would have had enough sense to know that you don't do anything, you secure the scene. And I think they would have made sure that nobody came and moved the body or, or touched, you know, or, or, or interfered with what would have been a crime scene and a CSI kind of setup where the police would come and want to maybe draw a, a map around the body or look or make a search for clues and so on and so forth. And I think because they have a kind of detective background, they would probably themselves initiate a search to see if they could find a murder weapon, for instance, or if they could find some kind of uh, fabrics from clothes or some evidence of who could possibly have committed that crime. You see? And um, that's assuming, of course, that they would have concluded that it was a crime because it could have been some other reason, you know, it could have been somebody had a heart attack or something like that. But I think whatever the reason was, I think it would have been a smart thing for them to look around to see if there's any sign of foul play. You know, I think beyond that, uh, then I can have to be a bit more grown up to think of anything else. I think there's an idea for another book. Yes. <laughs> Oh, Errol, it's been absolutely wonderful. Thank you so much for being my guest today. It's been very, very enjoyable. So thank you. And thank you as well, John. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening. Join us on our next episode for more fascinating and interesting matters that go on behind the yellow tape. Till then, you can keep in touch by emailing info at btytpodcast.com. You might be surprised to know that not all serial killers are straight, cisgender white men, and the victims of true crime are not a monolith either. She's Wendy and I'm Beth, and together we host Fruit Loops Serial Killers of Color, a true crime podcast. Together, we take deep dives into the true crime stories about marginalized and minoritized perps and victims that often go untold. We also provide the context and nuance that these stories deserve. At Fruit Loops, we're serving up true crime with a side of history, society, culture, and some fun. Listen to Fruit Loops Serial Killers of Color on Spotify, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.